Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along, good people, to episode 102 of the Howie Games Part A. Hope you've all caught up with the new content we put out last week, the player profile, which will drop every second Thursday to preview the following week's guest content you will not hear on the actual episode. The good old player profile, somewhat corny, but always light and entertaining. Check it out. Here's a little taste of Michael Holding's player profile. Okay, Mikey, if you were trying to impress someone, and you were cooking dinner, Mikey. What would you cook? Well, it depends on whether that person is Jamaican or not. If they are not Jamaican, I would cook something like a curry goat or ackee and saltfish to introduce them to something that's strictly Jamaican. If not, I'll stick to a normal steak and some salad and that sort of a thing. Curry goat sounds amazing. Yeah, it is lovely. A lot of people turn their nose up to goat, but it's not a lot different from the lamb. You can see the player profile of Mikey on your feed right now, but with this new content dropping and plans for some more top secret audio gold soon to come, please do me a huge favour and hit subscribe on your podcast player. Don't worry, it's free. It just means you will not miss anything we put out and allows the show to grow. All righty, let's get to Michael Holding. Tony Brake facing Holding. And he's building. So Holding strikes again. Very disappointed, disenchanted Tony Drake there. Clean ball by Michael Holding, who's really been the West Indian hero here today. Michael was a mainstay of one of the most feared, loved and dominant teams world cricket has ever seen. The mighty, mighty West Indians of the 1970s and 80s. A team of superstars, blokes so good they only need one name to be recognised. Viv, Clive, Desmond, Gordon and plenty more. The bowling attack that Mikey, as he's universally known, formed part of was quite simply lethal. Croft, Garner, Roberts and then Marshall, good luck facing that attack, they dominated the game. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind, you're confused and want to know, mystery. What is to be so much more than meets the eye? Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. This episode meanders through Michael's early years growing up in Jamaica, reaching a point where Mikey was the most graceful, beautiful, captivating quick man the game has ever seen. Watch some highlights of Mikey in action, as I have been doing with this podcast. He just flowed, flowed to the crease. It also unashamedly wanders through my earliest cricket memories, Michael describing in detail the players that captivated me as a small cricket-loving kid and explaining what made the team he played for so very, very good. In my young mind, in the early 80s, these huge, athletic, larger-than-life men from the other side of the world, well, they were to be loved as much as my Aussie heroes. If AB was knocked over, which was a disaster for me when I was eight years of age, it'd leave me in tears. If he was to go, it was okay if Mikey or Malcolm Marshall had done the damage. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes 
Michael also talks extensively about his fearless approach to cricket broadcasting, where he learnt the ropes with the likes of Richie Benno and Ian Chappell. But above all that, it is the last part of the podcast that will stay with me. Michael's words and thoughts on the scourge that is racism left me questioning a lot of things about the world in which we live and, frankly, how I as a white male view it. Since we recorded this episode, Michael spoke further about the issue on Sky's coverage of the West Indies versus England Test Series, which you can see on Fox Cricket. It was raw, it was really, really emotional, and it had a huge, huge impact around the globe. To be honest, that emotional part came when I started thinking of my parents. And it's coming again, no. Mark, I know what my parents went through. My mother's family stopped talking to her because her husband was too dark. I know what they went through. And that came back to me immediately. Since I spoke with Michael a week and a half ago, his explanations and hopes have been a topic around the dinner table with my wife and kids, and I really hope it becomes a talking point with you and your family. We did have a few slight audio issues in this episode, nothing too bad, but late in the piece, it gets a bit dodgy for a moment here and there, so sorry about that. Alrighty, enjoy the story of a man loved, loved by cricket fans around the world, Michael Anthony Holding. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, a man I grew up watching playing cricket and have had an enormous amount of enjoyment watching him commentate the game now. It's a thrill to speak to him. He is in England. I'm in Melbourne. Welcome to the Howie Games, to the great Michael Holding. Mikey, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me, Howie. I'm fine, thanks. Everything is good. You've had such a long history and career in cricket, Mikey. What is your relationship with the game today? Well, I've always enjoyed cricket. I played it from I was a kid, from I was about 10 years old. Played it for 12 years for the West Indies, apart from, of course, the junior junior years before I got to the West Indies. Shortly after that, I started doing radio commentary, I think within two or three years after retiring. <laughs> then I went into television. So it has basically been my life. Cricket has changed every aspect of my life through different ways. You know, it it's something that... I look up, look on and say I'm grateful for the game because without the game, I wouldn't have lived the life that I do live now. I wouldn't have enjoyed the different things that I have enjoyed. I wouldn't have met the people around the world that I have met. And I think travel is the greatest education you can ever have. When you can travel the world and you can meet people and you can see different cultures, you can immerse yourself into different cultures, that educates you. And that is why I think a lot of people around the world need to travel to get educated. Mikey, I, I love to travel and I've been fortunate enough to travel through the Caribbean for work and I've spent some time in Jamaica in uh, various places. I think it's the Nutford Hotel there in Kingston and a couple other places. For those that haven't been to the Caribbean, tell me about Jamaica. Well, Jamaica is the biggest English-speaking island in the Caribbean. So a lot of people, if, they, if you're coming to Jamaica, you, you want to make sure that you know where you're going. 
you do a little bit of studying about, about the island or if you're going there and you know someone there that can take you around because that's the best way to really see Jamaica and to explore Jamaica. A lot of the other islands, you can just drive around them in, in less than a day. In Jamaica, you really need to know the island because it's a very beautiful island. It has its problems. You know, there has its problems, especially in Kingston. There's a bit of violence, a bit of skullduggery around. But Jamaica still gets away over a million visitors a year, which is more than any other island in, in the Caribbean. So people know why they come to Jamaica. Mountainous, lots of rivers, beautiful beaches, and big enough to get lost up, up, away from the rest of the tourists if you don't want to see the rest of the tourists. It's a fantastic spot. Lots of culture, of course. You know, the Bob Marley Museum. There's so much that people can learn about Jamaica apart from just reading by going there. Tell me about the Jamaica of your young years, Mikey. As a five, six, seven-year-old, tell me about life in Jamaica for a young Michael Holding. I don't think I'll remember five, six, seven. <laughs> I think I might remember like nine, ten, eleven, twelve, that sort of a thing. We'll do that then. But we'll do a, that. Yeah, as a kid growing up in Jamaica, at that age, how you are innocent, you, you have no idea of what is happening in the real world. You're just living in your own little world, you and your friends, you and your schoolmates, you and the, your kids that live in your neighborhood. It was fantastic. We just roamed the neighborhood. There were no problems of going out and your mother thinking, you know, should I be watching him? Is, is he safe when he goes out this place or that place with his friends? And that's the way the world has changed so much. But we're going back 50 years, you know, we're going back... 50-odd years. So, you know, places will change. But as a young man growing up in Jamaica, it was happy-go-lucky. It was fun. It was frolic. It was playing football in the football season, playing cricket in the cricket season, riding skates in the concrete gully, playing marbles, playing cards with your friends. It was just fun and frolic. And then, of course, high school came and interrupted that. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about your early experiences of cricket. And is is it shabby cricket? Catchy Shubby. Catchy Shubby. Tell me about Catchy Shubby because I was introduced to this when I was in Jamaica and I'd never heard of it. No, I love cricket. <laughs> well, it's just a Jamaican form of free-for-all cricket. Catchy Shubby, it's, it comes from actually what you do during playing that game. And when you hear Shubby, that's just another word in Jamaica for pushing. When you shub somebody, that means you have pushed that uh-huh. person. Uh-huh. And a lot of shoving or pushing takes place in the game because what happens, it's a, as I said, it's a free-for-all hobby. You only bat if you get the person that's batting out. And that means getting them out bold because there are no umpires to say, okay, he's out LBW or that sort of a thing. And if he is out caught, you don't bat as a bowler. It's the oh. person who takes the catch. Right. So if the person hits the ball up in the air, you find a lot of people running to try and take the catch. That's where the shubby comes from. You push people out of the way because you want to be the one to take the catch. So you're shoving them out of the way. Catching shubby. And, you know, that's it. that was infor- the first bit of informal cricket that I played. And a bit of it is still played, but not as much as, as when I was a youngster. So as a bowler then, now you're explaining to me, there's no point stacking the cordon with six slips, two gullies and a point no, because no, 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 they no, take the no, catch, no, no. they get to bat. So you've got to knock them over. Exactly. And again, that's where the shubby comes in again because when certain bowlers are bowling, the guys in the field know this fast bowler is good. 
he might get on it. So they run into the slip cordon because they might take a catch in the slip cordon. <laughs> or what also happens as well, Howie, is that the guy who's keeping wickets, remember, we, we had no batting gloves or wicket keeping gloves or pads. So the guy that was actually keeping wickets, he had to make sure his left foot or his right foot was always in line with the stumps. If he was moving, he had to make sure his left foot was in line with the stumps because once that left foot got out of line of the stumps, somebody would just come in and say, no, I'm the wicket keeper. I'm pushing him out of the way. I should be. <laughs> so reading a bit about you, Mikey, and we'll get to you and Colin Croft and Malcolm Marshall and Joel Garner <laughs> and Clark and all these guys that were feared as quick bowlers and, you know, in theory, bowled short, 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 but you got a lot of wickets, bowled and leg before wicket. So now I'm going back. Is that because of pushy shubby and you need to uh, <laughs> knock the stumps out of the ground to get a hit, Mikey? Well, because it should be made me bowl fast. Right. Not It didn't help me with the LBW and the bowl and that sort of a thing. I developed accuracy from playing Cash It Should Be because you won't be hitting the stumps. But Cash It Should Be made me bowl fast because of the mere fact that you can't get anyone out LBW. I was an off-spinner as a youngster. Eight, nine, ten years old, I tried to bowl off-breaks. But when the guy puts his legs in front of the stumps <laughs> and you hit him on his legs, what, what have you achieved? Nothing. So I decided I'm going to bowl fast. So if I hit him on his legs once, the next time I have a ball, he won't want to put his legs in the way. So I'll have a chance of, of bowling him out. And of course, that helped me to develop the accuracy of bowling straight. But it, it influenced me, first of all, to bowl fast. So when you were bowling fast and you were progressing as a cricketer, your mum and dad, what are they advising? Because I've had a lot of athletes on this show and some say you need a backup plan, you need a plan B. Others feel that you don't because that can stop you achieving what you're trying to achieve. When you started to really get invested in cricket, what's your beautiful mother and father saying to you about careers and life and job opportunities? My mother was a teacher, Howie. And later became a headmistress. Oh, right. So you know what you know what you're, you, is coming. She's she kept on telling me, make sure you get a piece of paper behind your name. That was essential as far as she's concerned. That was the number one thing, and that is why I initially I did not play cricket for very long. I went to England. I went to Australia seventy seventy six. Went to England in seventy six, and I got a scholarship from the Jamaican government to go to University of West Indies, which was a four-year course to do computer science. I was at university when Pakistan toured the Caribbean in 1977, February, March, around that time of the year. And that is when I got the call for World Series cricket. Uh-huh. Because if it was not for World Series cricket, I would not have played cricket as long as I did. My first tour of the of Australia in 1976, four months, something like that, facing Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson, Max Walker, Gary Gilmore, Wayne Pryor. No helmet, not even a, a gum shield. Those things weren't around. No arm guard. The pads were as thin as, as anything. <laughs> I got 600 US dollars for that tour. The whole tour? The whole tour. 600 US dollars. No. And he'll appeal for court behind. He's out. Very faint edge down the leg side. And Turner, Court Murray, bold holding for 15. So obviously that would not influence me to become a professional cricketer. And I did not want to play county cricket. I was not going to go through that, that whole summer of 
running up on bowling fast all day. So that wouldn't have influenced me to continue my cricket career. But when Kerry Packer came along, World Series cricket came along, as I said, I was at University of the West Indies. I was just about completing my first year, N1, as they call it, to go into N2. Yep. I got the offer and I said, oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm now moving from $600 for a tour in 75, 76. World Series is 77, 78, which is two years later. I'm moving from $600 US for a tour to $25,000 for the same tour. Wow. And I'm guaranteed three years. Guaranteed three years. <laughs> so it's all about $75,000 over three years. There's so many things to talk about there. Just the first one that pops into my mind, when someone all of a sudden tells you over the phone in person, it's going to be $25,000 a year guaranteed and you're getting six hundred <clears> for four months, what's the first thing that enters your mind at that stage? Well, initially I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how much money I was being paid. I got the call from Clive Lloyd. He was in Trinidad. The test match was being played in Trinidad, West Indies, Pakistan. Yep. And I, of course, I was at my parents' home in Jamaica. And Lloyd and myself were very, very close. I, he was almost like my second father. In fact, when he called the house, because he had my house number, no mobile phones around in those days. No. He called the house and my father actually answered the phone and then called me and said, it's your father on the phone. <laughs> So I, I got on the phone and Lloyd told me what was happening. He said, listen, this is not something you can talk about, but there's a gentleman in Australia who wants to do this private enterprise cricket. He wants to do Australia versus the rest of the world. He wants four West Indians, which were um, Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards, Andy Roberts, and myself. So I said to Lloyd, you know, I don't know anything about this thing. What, what's happening? How, how, how does it work? He said, don't worry. Two people will come and see you in Jamaica and discuss it with you. And I said, who are these two people? He said, Austin Robertson, who I didn't know at the time, and Tony Gregg. And when he said Tony Gregg, I said, Tony Gregg, because you know this is the same man that had said just the, the year before when we were in England that he would make us grovel. Yes. And I was still had it in the back of my mind of you know this South African talking about he's going to make this West Indies team grovel. So he was not top of my list as people I wanted to interact with. No. But, and Lloyd picked it up immediately. I said, Mikey, don't worry about it. Just listen to what they have to say. So Tony Gregg and Austin Robertson came to Jamaica. I met them at, I think the hotel was the Hilton Hotel in Jamaica at the time. There's no longer a Hilton there. I think it was the Hilton then. And I went and saw them and they told me about this Kerry Packer who I had never heard about, showed me some magazine. I think the magazine was Woman's Only or something like that. That he also only owned Channel 9. Women's Weekly. The Women's Weekly. Women's Weekly. That's yes. it, Mikey, yes. <laughs> yes. And he owned Channel 9 television. He wanted to do this cricket thing. And I said to, to Tony Gregg and Austin Roberts at the time, listen, you know, you don't have to go through all this. I have no idea who this man is. You show me a balance sheet and all. I have no idea about that. But Clive Lloyd says that he has signed. Now show me where I need to sign. This is before I had even known or they had even told me how much money I was getting. And he said, these are the people that are coming as well or that we have already signed. And he mentioned three South Africans that had already been signed. And I said to them when they were leaving, listen, I'm happy to come, but I have a problem with these three South Africans that you, that you say that you have signed. One, um, Graham Pollock, I think. Yep. 
um, the names will come back to me eventually. I said I have a problem with this because my prime minister, Mr. Michael Manley, who was the prime minister of Jamaica at the time, he was one of the first people to sign that anti-South Africa issue, the Glen Eagles Agreement, yep. boycotting sporting contact with South Africa. If my prime minister is one of the first people to sign it, I can't then go and play with these South Africans. So this has to now pass through my prime minister for, for me to, to get permission to come. And they said, don't, don't worry about it. I'll, we'll talk to Kerry and Kerry will get in touch with him. So they signed it. They left and they said, within, say, two weeks, you'll get the first one third as a down payment to show that this thing is serious. Okay. Now, initially, I, I thought to myself, okay, I've signed it, but I doubt it's going to be happening because I don't see how people... Two years ago, I got $600 for the same thing, and now they give me $25,000. I don't see people paying people that sort of money to play cricket. So I said, okay, let's see what happens. I had nothing to lose. I was at university. I wasn't being threatened to do anything. So when they left, they said they had some other people to go and sign. They left. I went to my to the bank with my little bank book. Those days, I had a savings account. Matter of fact, the bank that I went to, that's where I got my first job after leaving school. It was Barclays Bank at the time. Okay. So I had a savings account downstairs. That's where they paid your salary into, into the savings account. So I went to, back to the bank, gave the lady, lady behind the counter my savings account book and asked them if they could update the book for me because I was expecting some money to be coming from overseas. She took the book, pushed it into the machine. Those days, as you know, not, not as automated as they are now. No. And they pushed it in the machine and a lot of noise, clang, 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 clang whatever <laughs> was being updated in the book. <laughs> she gave me back the book and the little gap under the, under the counter. I took it, I opened it, and there was nothing there. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, here we go, just as I thought. This is a joke. There is nothing happening. But I remember, again, how I cannot say anything to anyone about this thing. So obviously, it's not in the news because this is something secret going on. Yes. It's not in the news, so I have no idea what's going on. I can't call somebody to say what's happening with this or what's happening with that. If we had mobile phones, maybe I could pick up my mobile phone and call Lloydie again. But he's in a hotel somewhere in Trinidad. So I just relax. I say, okay, let me just wait another week or so. So I wait another week. I go back to the bank. I give the lady my bank book again for her to update it. Same process, clang, 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 clang. <laughs> she pushes the book back through in the little gap under the perspex. And I get the book and I open the book. And for the first time in my life, I see a comma in my savings account. Because <laughs> the money had arrived. It was something like, 9,000 something US dollars because the 25,000 was Australian dollars and at that time the Australian dollar was bigger than the US. Yeah, right. So my one third upfront payment was about 9,000 something US dollars and for the first time it was converted back into Jamaican dollars of course because the account was in Jamaican dollars. For the first time ever I saw a comma in my savings book because at that time at working at Barclays Bank my first salary pay in 19... What year? 74, 75, something like that. First paycheck. I never forget it. You never forget your first paycheck. My first paycheck was 120 Jamaican dollars for the month. 
So there is absolutely no way, no chance of me ever saving money to get to four figures, to for a comma, to oh. appear in your book. Wow. So this is now the first time. And I said, yes, it's for real. Because I didn't believe it was for real until I saw that, that balance in my account. So, Mikey, you mentioned your first tour of Australia in 75 and then 1976, and you mentioned the comment that Tony Gregg made that you guys were fantastic players, to paraphrase him, but when you were down, things wouldn't go your way and that they were going to make you grovel. So Mm -hmm. when do you first hear this? What is the reception between you and your fellow teammates when you hear that statement? Well, I heard it live. Not everyone did because, you know, 1976 when the West Indies toured England or any team that toured England at that time of the... No one played cricket on a Sunday. The touring team at any rate never played cricket on a Sunday. The only thing that took place cricket-wise on a Sunday in England was something called the John Player League, I think, which Uh, was a 40-over game. Yep. That started like 2 o'clock in the afternoon because, you know... It's all about going to church on Sunday morning. You come back, you spend some time with your family. Then in the afternoon, you, you can go and have a little knock around. So the West Indies team were not playing. So I was downstairs. I went down into the, the lobby lobby area because, again, those days, I don't remember exactly where I was, if I was in London or where, but the hotel that we were staying in, we didn't have a television set in our rooms. So if you want to watch TV, you had to go down and watch the main one downstairs. But more times than not, when you went downstairs, it would be on BBC. Because those days they had three channels. BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. Three channels. So it was unlikely that you would go downstairs and it would not be on BBC. So the cricket was on. And they went to interview Tony Gregg down at Sussex. And that is when I saw him and heard him make that comment. People are building these West Indians up. I'm not really quite sure that they're as good as everyone thinks they are. If they're down, they grovel. And I intend, with the help of Classy and a few others, to make them grovel. So a lot of people didn't see it, but I made sure that they knew about it. And of course, it would have come on in the newspapers, in, in, in the news, that sort of thing later on. And when everyone was made aware of it, we all just said, okay, we'll just show him. That just made us put our backs up, got more resolve, and we'll show him exactly what is the situation is about making us grovel. Tony Gregg facing holding. And he's bowling. So holding strikes again. And a very disappointed, disenchanted Tony Gregg there. Because of the comment by Tony Gregg, we were, as I said, adamant that we were going to try and destroy England and destroy him as much, make sure that he didn't succeed at all. And we're adamant and we were really determined to beat England and beat them as badly as we possibly could. I think we beat them 3 0 in that series. Yeah. And that last test match, although we had already won the series, it wasn't a matter of just going through the motions. And he's done it too, Olive. Yes, he's out in the identical fashion. Would you believe it? An inside edge, first ball. Holden's got eight wickets. Selby goes, first ball. Out for naught. And Michael Holden, in this dramatic piece of bowling, is now on a hat trick. And that was our mindset throughout that entire series beat England, especially England led by Tony Gregg as badly as we can. Tell me about that team, Mikey, that you played for. It was, you know, I think 
over a 20-year period, you might have lost one test series to New Zealand. I hear the comparisons these days about the Australian team of 10 years ago and, you know, they, they struggle to win in India and various places and other teams. Then, like, you look at statistically what your cricket team did, one test series in 20 years. What made that team so good over that period, Mikey? What was it if you had to distill it for me? Apart from the talent. Well, apart from the talent, because if you have no talent, it doesn't mean anything. Again, World Series cricket had a lot to do with that team's development. We have always produced a lot of talented cricketers in the Caribbean. You can go through the Caribbean and name a lot of great players, and not necessarily from different eras either. You can go through the Caribbean and name great players from the same era in the same team but they were not anywhere near as successful as this team became. Because on the World Series cricket, we really bonded together. Before I played for the Westerns, I used to hear a lot of talking about, you know, these guys, all, they're all for themselves, whether they're from Trinidad or Guyana or Barbados, they just click together. And it's, when they go, they're all going out together. And it's a clique situation. The team that I played on, because of World Series cricket, and also I must give Clive Lloyd a lot of credit with where this is concerned as well. We had a proper team. We didn't just have a group of men. We had a proper team. Right. During World Series cricket, we bonded together as a family because, as you know, we were banned from traditional cricket initially. So we had nothing else. We had ourselves. And also, Paka demanded professionalism. And not professionalism just because you're being paid, you're a professional. A lot of people think because they're earning they are professional. They're not a professional of earning money. You're a professional with your attitude and with the work that you are willing to do to earn that money. And Packer demanded true professionalism. So we had to work hard. We had to train hard. We were physically fit because of Dennis Waite that was assigned to the team. Got us extremely fit. We had a good set of talented cricketers. We were a family and that bonded us together. And there was nothing that could break that bonding apart. On the field, I'll tell you, off the field, we had our clashes. <laughs> you had personality clashes. You had differences of, of opinion. But out on the field, we were a proper unit, a very talented, cohesive unit. And that made us so successful. Mikey, I have so many questions for you out of what you're telling me. The first one, though, in relation to that, World Series cricket, which is before my time. The game has been promoted and advertised uh, more this summer in Australia than ever before, and successfully too. We heard a lot of noise now about the Aussie boys now and how they have a better team this year. Their loyalty is moving, but they surely need improving or else they'll go down under, have no fear. Come on, Aussie, show us what you got. Enough to put you in these on the spot. I wouldn't like to bet that. Might you regret that? It's a year that won't be easily forgotten. In those 50 over white ball games, and the Australians are wearing the bright yellow, and yeah. the West Indies, Mikey, what does the team think when someone walks in for the first time and says, right, this is what you guys are wearing, and they uh, hand uh, over uh, the pink uh, gear, Mikey. Like, uh, what are you thinking uh, when you first see that? Well, a lot of the guys in the team were a little bit sceptical, put it mildly, <laughs> <how we, laughs> about, we, about wearing the, the, those pink. We christened it coral. 
Coral, Coral, that's a nice way of saying pink, Mikey. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but you have to remember this is late 70s. In the late 70s, big black men didn't consider themselves wearing pink or coral. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and again, as I've said to so many of my friends who keep all jiving me about this pink or coral that we had to wear, I said to them, you will never find a picture of me in that. Because as I said to you, I had my injury problems. I hardly played in the games. And I never, ever got a chance to wear that pink in a, actually in a game. Right. I, I got the equipment. And I did some promotion also. Because, you know, Kerry Packer had an association with a, some companies. One was a fast food chain. One was a petrol station. One was a car company. So we always had to go and do promotional stuff with them. And when we did the promotional stuff, you could wear your cricket gear. So what I would do, I would mix, mix and match. I would wear like a pink shirt and a white trousers or a pink trousers <laughs> and a white shirt because I didn't just want to wear a full pink or a full white. <laughs> but I never got a chance to play in a game with them. Mikey, how long was your run-up? How many steps was your run-up? My steps was 22 steps to the marker. And yep. then I would go beyond the marker again, perhaps another four or five steps. So I would run into the marker and I would make sure that my left foot hit that marker so that I would, I would know from then that I was striding all properly to get to the crease. Who gave you the nickname Whispering Death? Um, Dickie Bird, the umpire, the English umpire. I, I didn't know about it until a journalist told me about it. And then, of course, Dickie was a very friendly guy, you know, so you could talk to Dickie. And I went to Dickie one day. It wasn't even during my playing days that I asked him. And I went to Dickie one day. And I said, Dickie, why did you give me this nickname about whispering death? He said, Mikey, when I was umpiring and you were running into bowl, I had to keep on looking behind me because I had no idea if you were running in or not. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, so what about the death? I never killed anyone. <laughs> he said, yes, but you could have. <laughs> Back to Mikey in a minute. The next full-length episode of the show will drop on Thursday, July 30, and we are going back to the golf course with 1991 Open champion Ian Baker Finch. Now, Finchy, this man is a beauty, a man that has reached the highest echelons of his sport as well as experienced the lowest of lows where his game completely deserted him, leaving him in tears. He has also played with the game's biggest names, from Jack Nicklaus and Tom Watson to a very, very young Tiger Woods. He was just something extra special and he did everything he possibly could to be the best he could be from a very young age and it, and it showed. You know, it could really you see it? At, he, was, he was different to the rest. Could you see it at 15 when you were playing with him and Mark? Like, did you go away after the first round and say, oh, this is another decent kid or wow, this guy's... Oh, no, this, oh wow, this guy's really good. Wow, he's going to be Tiger Woods the most famous player of all time. No, I, I didn't know that at 15, but I knew he was gonna be the best he could be because everything he did, every question he asked, every, everything he did, each time we played, he had the tape on the finger the same. He, he was um, just, yeah, special. That's Ian Baker Finch in a couple of weeks. Don't forget, however, to keep an eye out for Finchie's player profile dropping next Thursday, July 23. It's a goodie. It's a goodie. Favourite movie of all time? First, for the cinematography, I've got to go Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner, Tatanka, you know, the whole deal. Loved it. Yes. And then everyone says Shawshank Redemption. I thought that was pretty cool. I could watch it, you know, 
every month. Are you a Caddyshack man or not, being a yeah. golfer or Tim oh. Cup? Oh, definitely Caddyshack, Bill Murray. <laughs> I've got to meet Bill Murray and talk to him a few times over the years because they cover that event at Pebble Beach each year that he goes oh. to. So uh, really, really good guy, just a regular guy. That's Ian Baker Finch's player profile coming out next week, July 23. Alrighty, back to Mikey. So Mikey, I was looking at I was looking at some highlights over the last few days. This is a strange question to ask a man, but can you look at it now of seeing so much cricket and see the beauty that you had when you bowled? Like beauty is a strange word, Mikey, but it was beautiful watching you bowl. Man down there on the boundary, nicely caught. Fielding has been great. They say that everything is uh, run for them, but my word, they've played well. They've demolished Australia for their lowest ever score against West Indies. 76 all out. Michael Holding, 9.2 overs, three maidens, six for 21. I understand. I, I, I don't think of it. I don't try and evaluate how I bowl, what I bowl. This, you know, people keep on telling me these sort of things. Uh, I was very good friends with the late Richard Beno. I adored that man. I admired that man. When I worked for Channel 9 on a few occasions, I tried to spend as much time as I possibly could with him and Ian Chappell. And he, Richie would talk a little bit about when he was commentating here in England and I was bowling and that sort of thing. And it makes you, your skin tingle, you know, you when you hear people like that talking highly about what you did. But me personally, I don't go around thinking, oh, you know, you hear people say, well, he was like a gazelle. I, I don't go around thinking about things like that. You should, Mikey, you should. I'm going to play you a question now. Frequent listeners to this show know that my kids ask questions of the guests that they're interested in. And they've been watching your oh. videos, Mikey. Um, my son is eight and he is okay. He is obsessed with cricket. It's he is obsessed with cricket, which is a beautiful thing. Good. Um, his name is Mac, Mikey, but his nickname that he you're whispering death. He is the big penguin. All right, <laughs> oh, the big penguin. <laughs> the big penguin. So here you go. Hopefully you I can hope hear this. I hope he's a little bit more coordinated than a penguin. <laughs> yeah, well, he's getting there, Mikey. This is uh, his question to you for the big penguin. Hi, Mr. Holding, Big Penguin here. I'm eight and I've watched you bowl so many times. You're so smooth, quick and just, it's amazing. I've tried to bowl as fast as you, but I can't. I've got to 55 kilometres an hour. The things I do to try and make my bowling super duper fast is a nine step run up and I step towards the batsman as I release the ball. But what else can I do to get your speed? <laughs> well, first of all, first of all, Mac Big Penguin. <laughs> that age, bowling at 55 kilometers an hour is pretty good. Good. And I would advise that you don't really try and bowl at your optimum at that tender age. You know, fast bowling is hard work. It's very strenuous on your body. It's something that is unnatural. No, if you give a kid a ball or a stone or an object and tell him to get it to the other end of the pitch or get it into the stand. He's not going to bowl it there naturally. He's going to throw it. So throwing is the most natural thing to do. Bowling is unnatural. And so it puts a lot of strain on various parts of your body. You don't want to be trying to be doing that until you're pretty more pretty well matured. When, even when I was at school, in school, twice his age, Howie, I was 16, 17, 18 at high school, playing cricket for, for KSE. 
I remember my coach, I think I might have been 17 or 18 by then. I remember my coach going away on a, a short break and saying to my, my captain at school that if he came back from his break, because we were playing a couple of games while he was away, mm-hmm. if he came back from his break and heard that I had bowled more than five overs in a spell, the captain was no longer going to be captain. Right. Five overs maximum. And I was 17, 18 years old. I wasn't big and strong even at 17, 18. But I was a lot more mature. And that's twice big penguin's age. <laughs> so, so you don't want to be putting your body under too much stress as a young man. You'll, you, you'll hurt yourself. So when you were in your heyday, and I, there was a great article I was reading, you know, the, the, the four quicks of the West Indies, and it was you and Joel Garner, um, Andy Roberts, and Malcolm Marshall. And it said these four men can bowl 95, kilometer, 95 miles well, an hour. Originally, plus. Howard. Yes. Let me interrupt you. Please a do. Please here. do. Your original four. Yes. Were Colin Croft, Joel Garner, Andy Roberts, and myself. Wow. That was the original four. Then Colin Croft went to South Africa, and obviously during going to South Africa during apartheid, he was banned. But those were the original four. It's Michael Holding moving in off his long run here. Appeal for a catch, he's gone. Catch down the leg side by Dujon, well taken. And Border is out for 15. And that's out, caught by Lloyd, first slip. Croft coming around the wicket, and the first delivery that Hughes has faced from him coming around the wicket, he's edged straight into the lap of Clive Lloyd at first slip. Deep breath from Graham Wood, enormous pressure on the opening batsman against Joel Garner. Off the edge, in the air, Vivian Richards under it, and the first Australian wicket has fallen, Joel Garner's first over. That's caught behind, he's gone. Roberts gives him the signal, sends him on his way. Border caught Dujon Bull Roberts. Who was the quickest on their day, Mike? Andy Roberts. Right. Andy Roberts was the quickest initially. Andy, when we came to Australia, Center 576, Andy was the quickest by a distance. But Andy played a lot of county cricket. And of course, the workload of playing county cricket yeah. and having the ball so few was for Hampshire. He lost his pace a lot quicker than a lot of the other fast bowlers. I took over from Andy as far as pace is concerned, perhaps 79, 80, 81, somewhere around there. But 75, Andy was the quickest. So take me to the top of your mark, Mikey, when you are bowling fast, when you're bowling rapid. You've got those 22 steps plus a couple to line it up. What are you thinking about? What's your process as you run through? Talk me through Mikey holding when he was bowling rapid. Well, all I'm thinking about is that delivery that I'm going to bowl to that batsman. Exactly what is in my mind. What what delivery do I intend to bowl on this occasion? And unless it's the first the ball of the over, it will always depend on what took place, the previous delivery. The reaction of the bowler or the batsman rather to the previous delivery. That would then formulate in my mind what I'm going to do with the next delivery, what I'm going to try to do. Because not... Every ball that you bowl is going to do what you are trying for that ball to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what is going through your mind. And you're concentrating on the pitch and concentrating on 
peripheral vision now because your mind or your eyes are on the pitch where you want to pitch the ball. Your peripheral vision is on the stumps and on the batsman. But as I am running in, because as I hit that marker that I told you about, I no longer have to think about my run-up. I know my run-up will be fine. I'm not going to bowl a no ball. So the rest of those steps going in is all about focusing on the pitch, the area that I want to hit, and as I said, my peripheral vision is on the batsman to see what his feet are doing. And that's all I'm concentrating on. Mikey, as I said, over the last couple of days, I've been watching quite a few West Indies highlights, which has been fantastic. And batsmen on both sides did get hit, but the majority of the action is either bowled, caught behind, caught in slips. But there's a perception of the West Indies in your day that you guys dominated from bowling short. But as you as you mentioned early. You know how this hitting batsman thing is a fallacy. It is. A lot of batsmen did not get hit. Some people got hit. Obviously, people got hit. People on the West Indies team got hit in Centerfire 76. Kyle Sharon got a broken nose in Perth. Derek Murray, when he walked, walked, went out there to, to take his guard, had to take his guard in a pool of blood in the crease. Oh. So people got hit. But it was not a matter that. Every ball was a short ball and people were being hit left, right and centre. It was all ducking and diving and that sort of a thing. That's the fallacy that was built up around the West Indies and the West Indies four-pronged pace attack because people were trying to drag down the excellence of the West Indies team. Nobody was willing to put us on the pedestal that, that we should have been on. Everyone, not everyone really, shouldn't say everyone, but most people were trying to find some little way to... At a demerit point there and a demerit point there, that sort of a thing. So it, it was no matter that you was wasted running and hit people. If we did that, we would make friends. And wherever we went as a West Indies team, we made friends with the opposition, with the people who worked in the hotels, with the people in the country. Howie, I don't think there is any team that can say that they made as many countrymen from the country that we are playing against support them as we did. We went to Australia. We got a ton of Australian supporters behind us. We went to India, which is unbelievable for you to go to India and have Indian support in the West Indies team playing against India. We come to England. We had not just the West Indian supporters, but we had a few English men or women or English folk who would support the West Indies team because they loved the brand of cricket that which we played. Obviously, with a shoot, when you bowl a few short balls, you're going to hear a few oohs and ahs in, in the crowd, that sort of a thing. But this short ball and bombardment of bouncers is just something that people are trying to tag us with. You know, you, you mentioned earlier on about the amount of bowls that got through. It have been last year, year before last. And somehow the topic came up about number of wickets or bowl and LBW. And Benedict Bramange, our statistician, wrote down some stuff on a piece of paper and, and pushed it on the NASA Hussein's nose to show him the percentage of wickets I got bowl and LBW and that sort of thing. And NASA, NASA, to his credit, read them out and said, oh, you know, people always talk about you, you guys bowling out bouncers, but have a look at these statistics. And when he read them out, I just said to him sarcastically, yes, Nas, the stumps were taller those days. <laughs> well, you're exactly right about what you say because my early memories of watching cricket were you know, the three-way 
uh, World Series cricket, and you guys were in the the grey and the mauve. Second year. Is second year. That's it. Can, can you yes. in, can you indulge me and just give me a, a line on each of these cricketers that I grew up idolising? What what made them good, maybe. So I'll start sure. I'll start at the top of the order. I'm gonna end up crossing generations, but to me, you know, Australia make 180 and you think we're in a chance. And then Greenwich and Haynes would just come out and go whack, 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 and she'd almost be over. So um what made these guys special? Firstly, Gordon Greenwich. He didn't get that off the middle, but it's gone far enough and fast enough to bring up the double hundred. It's Greenwich's fourth double century. Gone Greenwich because of his technique. He was a fantastic player, technically sound. He struggled the first year he went to Australia because Gordon played a lot of his cricket or most of his cricket in his early days in England where the pitch pitches were always damp and not very hard. The ball didn't bounce very high, just moved around a bit. But as soon as he was able to cope with his harder bouncing pitches, he became a fantastic player. I've said it before and I've told people on so many occasions, if it hadn't been for IBA Richards in that West Indies team, everyone would have talked about Gordon Greenwich. He was a fantastic player. But when you have Vib Richards in your team, obviously the limelight is going to be on him. Desmond Hines? Another fantastic player. Not as good technically as Gordon Greenwich, but the partnership, the understanding that they had with each other, that helped us at the top of the order tremendously. All right, you mentioned IBA Richards, who you... You'll have to remind me, Mikey, you played an innings alongside Viv when you two put on a lot against England. And I wouldn't say I played an innings alongside Viv. I stood at the other end. <laughs> right, and he just belted them, did he? Exactly. So here he comes, Ian Botham to Vivers. No problem, a single anywhere he wants it. And that he decided was once again on the lakeside. He's made it into four, which takes him on to 103. And what a great innings this has been. 103 out of 173, with wickets tumbling all around him. He's only received 112 balls. We're really seeing something here, I can tell you. A short one, attempted bounce, and that's put away in great style again for four more. And one feels a shade sorry for the bowlers, I must say. It's almost impossible to bowl to this man when he's in this frame of mind. And as you might expect, it ended with a four. Richard's back held high. One of the great innings of one-day cricket. 189 not out. And he alone is responsible for putting West Indies in such a very strong position. I think we've made 179 or 181 or something like that. And I got a princely 12. <laughs> but it was a good 12. <laughs> exactly. And i tell you something, I got about eight of those 12 runs after we had gotten to a score where we thought we were safe. <laughs> so tell then I just opened up and said, OK, if we, even if I get out at this point, no big thing. Tell me about Viv. What made Viv the most special? Strength of character, first of all. Obviously, skill, technically sound, that sort of thing, but strength of character, Howie. I've seen people with, with similar amounts of ability as Viv that could never, ever achieve what Viv achieved because of his strength of character. He believed in himself. That's why some people thought he was arrogant. But he believed in himself. He knew how good he was. And he just went out there and dominated people. He, he could obliterate any attack. There was a calypso made 
in the Caribbean about him, whether he's facing fast or slow, um, pace or spin, you go back to the boundary. You know, he was just an all-round fantastic player. And his presence at the crease got him halfway there already. People saw Viv Richards walking out with his maroon cap, never a helmet, chewing gum, and hitting the top of his bat as he comes in. And that won him half the battle already. <laughs> it couldn't intimidate somebody like like Dennis Lilly. You know, Dennis Lilly was a, a warrior just like Viv. But Viv won half the battle against most other bowlers, just with his presence and his attitude and his character. I will get back to the other cricketers they want to ask you about, but just we're talking about Viv. I was watching again highlights this morning before I spoke to you of the 1979 World Cup final. Sunshine and Father Time greet a packed crowd to the second potential World Cup final at Lords. Rarely wins the toss for England and no doubt hoping for some early movement puts West Indies into bat. England versus the West Indies. Yep. West Indies 4 for 99 before Viv makes 138 off 157. Yes, that's going to be it. It's going to be his hundred. A fine hundred for Richards of only 130 balls. Last ball of the innings. And he does again. It's another six. Pulled up. Off stunt there. Richards finishes with 138 not out. With three sixes, 11 balls. And West Indies have scored 286 for nine off their 60 overs. Mikey holding two for 16. Off eight very economical overs, knocked over Brealey and Boycott. Last crowd in the sunshine. Boycott facing holding. He's gone for a hook. He's tied in the mid-wicket. And Kelly Turan takes the catch. Boycott out for 57, but with only three falls. England 135 for two. 20 overs to go. You destroy England. They lost They lost eight for 11 at the end of the match, Mikey. Yep. He's holding for a dot. England all out for 194 or 51 overs, and they've lost their last eight wickets for 11 runs. So West Indies have won by 92 runs and deserve to become holders of the Prudential World Cup for the second time. Tremendous jubilation by the many West Indian supporters. The bizarre thing was as soon as uh, whoever was bowled at the end and you'd won convincingly, there was no celebration out on the ground because within three seconds, the ground was just full of people yep. and there's just you guys sprinting off to the change Swamped. rooms, Mikey. That, well, that was the thing those days. If you look at any cricket those days, at the end of the day, people just swarmed the field. They just ran onto the field, wanted to party. Those were days when everybody felt safe. You were safe and you felt safe. No... With the world that we're living now, you can't afford people to run on the ground because you don't know their intentions, you know. But those days, you, you never felt threatened, and you were never threatened. People ran onto the field, they pat you on the back, you know, they have a chat with you, and they run back up. Even at the fall of a wicket, sometimes when Westerns were playing England in England, people run onto the field. Dicky Bird, as a matter of fact, told me that he has some money for me. I, I said to him, Dicky, what do you mean you have some money for me? This is going back quite a few years. I said, Mikey, you remember in 76 when you got Tony Gregg out? I said, yeah. He said, Did those, those people that ran onto the field? I said, yeah. He said, one of them came up to me and gave me a fiver and said, give this to Mikey holding for me. I said, so where's my fiver, Dickie? And Dickie said, it's in the Yorkshire Building Society. <laughs> Winning the World Cup, it was fantastic to know that you won the World Cup because it's the first world tournament you're going to have now in, in cricket. I was doing another interview with a journalist sometime last year. 
And he asked me how much money we got for the World Cup. And I didn't even remember. I didn't even remember that there was prize money for the World Cup. Wow. I had to call Andy Roberts and I said, Andy, did we get any prize money for winning the 79 World Cup? And he said, yes, we got something. It was so small, you don't remember. Huh. Now you win the World Cup, you get something like $4 million or something like that. So it's a different world, completely different world. Well, the, the what th- I do remember though, yes. when we won the 79 World Cup, Forbes Burnham, who was the, the prime minister, our president, I think he was president of Guyana at the time. He invited the West Indies team down there and we all got a gold chain with a pendant. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> for, for, Forbes Burnham fetted us. <laughs> Let me continue. And the, the, we've got to Viv. This one will surprise you. And I love this bloke. I'm not sure how much you played with him because he was so different to the rest of the top order. Larry Gomes. Larry Gomes. He was your nudger while everyone else seemed to be just smoking them to the boundary, Mikey. And he would get 70, 80 runs without anyone noticing. Because as you said, he wasn't smoking it to the boundary, but Larry was another tough, tough guy. That's a beautiful shot from Gomes off the back foot. Not a bad ball, that, from Botham. It wasn't all that short. And 100 partnership comes up with a stroke from Gomes, beautifully timed and nicely positioned. He was very good through, it, through the onside, a lot stronger through the onside than the offside, but he was still a good cutter of the ball and that sort of thing. And he was very good against fast bowling. He never got flustered. Didn't matter how many bounces you bowl at Larry. And those days, you know, he had this big afro that was bouncing around. <laughs> <laughs> and he just went about his little business, just accumulating his runs and held the top water together while the rest of the guys were blasting it all over the place. You mentioned Clive earlier on being like your second father. Very sketchy memories for me of him fielding and him being recalled, being known as the super cat because he was just unbelievable in the covers. He was obviously obviously the central point of this great West Indian team to get you rolling. Bye, Lloyd. Yes. Well, he might be 40 years of age, but it doesn't stop him pulling off one of the better runouts we're likely to see this summer. Took him a moment or two to get started. When he did, he was really motoring, and Borden knew he was in trouble there. For sure. You know, I mentioned earlier on that I had to give him credit as well. I didn't go on to say why. When as I said previously as well, before I played for the Westerns, I used to hear a lot of talk, even from Jamaicans who went to play for the Westerns and came back home, about the insularity within the team, not just around the Caribbean, but even within the team. When Clive Lloyd took over, I can't verify everything that I heard. I can only go by what people tell me. Yep. But I know when I joined the team, Clive Lloyd was the captain, and I know what Clive Lloyd did with that team and within that team. Clive Lloyd encouraged people to be mixing. First of all, those days, everybody did, did not get a single room like what's happening now. So you had to have a roommate. The captain, the vice captain had single rooms, everybody's roommates. That's why they always had even numbers of, of, of players. Everybody's with a roommate, their roommate was not going to be from, from their island, right. if it could be avoided. Obviously, if you have seven people from one island, you're going to get some point that you have two of them together. But Clive Lloyd definitely influenced the entire camaraderie of that team. 
to make sure that we all got to know each other, got to mix with each other, got to understand each other, to build that unit. And he did not care. He was a main selector, and as, as the more successfully he became, the more his word meant and the more he was able to get the team and the players that he wanted. And he did not care where you were from. He was from Guyana, but he was not looking primarily to see if he could slip in another Guyanese. He was looking for the best cricketers in the Caribbean because he wanted to keep on winning. And that, again, helped to build that team. Tell me about Joel Garner because... As the big bird. Well, Mikey, as a... as a Like my son's eight now, I guess I'm eight, I'm starting to watch cricket and there was... I remember going to the cricket at the MCG and the West Indies are walking off, Mikey, and I just remember this man mountain walking past me. It was like he was like he was from another planet. The man was so big, Mikey. Joel Garner, the bowler. He's gone. Yes, he's out. First ball. Captain Dujon and the runabout for Kim Hughes and Australia continues. A beautiful piece of bowling, but what a superb catch. Everybody hoping for Kim Hughes to succeed. He's failed, and Australia in real trouble at three for 91. Yeah, he, he was a big man then, and he's an even bigger man now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he hasn't he hasn't got grown that way, right. but he has grown this way a right. bit. <laughs> the big bird. But, you know, big bird was a fantastic. You know, apart from his bowling, just he was such a lovable person. You know, big but lovable, never dangerous, always smiling. And his fielding in the gully was fantastic. Those buckets that he had for hands. <laughs> All the ball had to do is pass and we were nearby. But, you know, good, good man to have in the team. Spent a few late nights out, but... Did he? We'll, we'll Did he? <laughs> <laughs> the, the last one I will ask you about, because I, I, I could go on forever here, um, obviously sadly departed is Malcolm Marshall and... Probably when I started watching cricket, he was off a short run and he was bowling in swingers, out swingers, leg cutters, off cutters. Wow, he was, um, he just seemed amazing, Mikey, amazing. Again, the in-swinger, and this time it collects the stumps so he doesn't have to worry about the LBW, and that gives Malcolm Marshall 10 for the game. Great fast bowler. You know, maybe by the time you started watching how he had lost a little bit of his pace, yes. but even when he lost a bit of his pace, he was still a dynamic fast bowler. You know, he knew his craft. He had studied his craft. He knew his craft. Initially, when he came into the West Indies team in 1980, the official, the, I shouldn't say official, because the other team was official as well. But he had toured India while we, the Lloyd and the World Series people were away. He had toured India with a West Indies team in 78, 79, somewhere around there. And then when, afterwards, he was cricket, when we all got back together, he then joined the, the West Indies team with Lloyd D and Andy and myself. And watching this guy in the nets, because I didn't know much about Malcolm Marshall, watching him running in the nets, he was rapid. <laughs> he and Desmond Haynes were very good friends, both from Barbados and Desi started telling us about Malcolm Marsh and of course then you start looking out for him and watching him in the nets. He was rapid and then of course he got into the final 11 and he proved to be a great fast bowler. You know, not just somebody who could do it but someone who could teach it. You travel around the world and so many people will tell you the influence that Malcolm Marshall had on their careers and not just bowlers, batsmen as, as well. You know, when Malcolm Marshall died, I ran across Chris, Chris Kearns. And he said to me, oh, I, 
obviously can't go to his funeral. I know you'll be there, but please send my regards to his family and my commiserations and condolences, that sort of thing, because Malcolm has a great influence on my career. I didn't quite know how, where, how, huh. and when. And then you go to South Africa, and you're across people like Sean Pollock, even Herschel Gibbs. You know, those guys talk so much about Malcolm Marshall when he played in South Africa. So it wasn't just someone who could play the game. He could also teach the game. That's the end of Michael Holding Part A. Join us for his second spell on Part B. Listener.